Welcome back to the Sip and Feast podcast. Today we're going to talk about chicken parmesan or chicken parm. This is everybody's favorite, I would think, especially if you're listening to this content. Before we get into that, I just want to let you know that we're going to be uploading the podcast either on Monday or Tuesday now. We're going to leave it to you to tell us which would be your preferred day. Those are the only two choices you have. That's it. But it could be morning or at night. Also, for all your questions, email us at podcast at sipandfeast.com. So before we get into it, I just want to sell you on why, why you should like chicken parm, why you should be thinking about chicken parm the way we think it, think about chicken parm. Chicken parm, really simply, is a breaded cutlet that is fried, never baked. It has a delicious sauce. Often it's a fresh sauce, mozzarella cheese melted on top of it. It is comfort food. It is Italian-American comfort food. It is uniquely Italian-American. It is not an Italian thing. And it is a great thing. It's an amazing thing. And I, I would go out on a limb and say, Italians, people in Italy, wish they could take ownership of it. But they can't. They just can't. So what they, they do then is... They don't want to take ownership What of they it. do then is bash it. <laughs> I, I actually just read an article, and I was going to save this to talk about later, but this is a good time for me to interject. I read an article saying that Italians try desperately to forget that chicken parm exists in the world and that they are so traumatized by the fact that this recipe exists. That's so funny. And the, the article was written by an Italian, not an Italian-American. Yeah, but again, I it's don't think- It's a traumatizing dish. I don't think that person speaks for every everybody in they Italy. They might not, but I'm just telling you- Just like people who I write read. an article about Americans, and if they're writing it from someone who's in LA or someone who is in Florida, they don't speak for me, they don't speak for you. Right, that's true. But yeah, you're saying that they all hate chicken parm. Based on what I've read. So- I know you love chicken parm because you're still with me. Let's get into it. So do you want to talk about some of the ways that you'd, some of the places you'd find chicken parm or the ways that it would be served here? Where you would find chicken parm would be from the most inexpensive pizzeria or chain restaurant like the Olive Garden or Carabas or something like that, all the way to the most expensive restaurants like Il Molino, Reos, Carbone. Or Carbone, however people are saying it. Is it better in those restaurants paying 50, 60, maybe $70 for it versus your local pizzeria? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of it probably comes down to the level of preparation that the restaurant's putting into it. Like I know there are certain shortcuts that places can take. They can use a frozen cutlet oh, from a bag. Yeah, that's horrible. And make it with that. Or they can make That's it- That's a travesty. They I, can make I, it the, the I, real way. I don't think anybody's doing it that way. No, I think they are. Not your local pizzeria. Not your local pizzeria, but I think maybe in other parts of the country where pizzerias aren't you know, as prolific or available, they are doing it that way. When I'm speaking about what a pizzeria is doing, I'm speaking about what a pizzeria here in New York is doing. And- they wouldn't be caught dead doing a cutlet out of a, a frozen cutlet out of a bag, just like they wouldn't be caught dead not making a pizza the way it's supposed to be made. Is the Olive Garden really using fresh chicken cutlets that they're pounding and frying? You know, I don't. I, I would guess not. But if somebody 
who's listening has worked at the Olive Garden and you happen to know, let me know if I'm wrong. You're right. They probably are using it out of the bag. I had a friend who worked at Mac the Macaroni Grill in college. Oh, I remember yeah. that place. Yep. Yeah. So I, I would think it's fairly similar. But I think if you're going to like some of the more high-end places, they probably are taking the time to you know, pound the cutlet and really just do it the right way. I think it's maybe helpful to back up a little bit and talk about maybe the backstory. The origin. The origin yeah. of chicken parm. And the fact, we already talked about the fact that it is not an Italian dish. However, its roots are in Italy. And it's from eggplant parm, which in Italy is called melanzana alla parmigiana. So there are some, you know, speculations by food historians as to what city or what region this dish originated in. Um, it's possible that it's from the city of Parma, which is in the northern part of Italy. And it's actually in the northern part of Emilia Romana. Um that's the predominant explanation. I think that's because they get, they're like the victors. They get to write, try to write the history more than Southern well, Italians. So there's a few other theories. Yeah, okay. okay. So the reason why that theory is, exists is because Parma is the name of the city. Yeah. Parmigiana. But because Melanzana alla Parmigiana was popular in the Southern regions, like Campania and Sicily, that's more likely where melon uh, where eggplant parm comes from so there's an authority on sicilian food that i read an article about his name is pino Carenti. his theory is that the word parmigiana stems from the word damigiana which is a wicker sleeve that's used for wine bottles and also the same type of sleeve would be used for the hot casserole dish that eggplant parm would have been served in another theory is that the word is derived from the Sicilian word palmigiana, P-A-L-M-I-G-I-A-N-A, meaning the slats on a roof, which would resemble the layering or the shingle-like layering That's what of I the read. eggplant. I read, but it said parmigiana, so C-I-A-N-C-A is the slats. Yeah. I'm just telling you what yeah, I... No, keep, keep, keep yeah, going. and I'll, we'll link all these yeah, articles and the sources. So those are the theories... Um, as to where the word or where melanzana alla parmigiana actually comes from. Do you have more or is that or is that it? I, th I have another one. Those are the theories on the words that I found. Okay, I read that it came from the Middle East, right? That's where, that's where it came from. Some food historians speculate that the dish originally was meant to kind of duplicate. I'm thinking of the Greek dish with eggplant in it. It's like- Moussaka? Moussaka, Yeah. So that's what I read that. I did okay. read that. So, I didn't even see like that. Like an early version of moussaka. Mm -hmm. So layered eggplant, which is what moussaka is. Moussaka is, and I'm not an expert on this at all, but it's ground beef, like seasoned ground beef, layered eggplant that's, I think it's pre-fried or pre-roasted, and then layered potatoes, and then all uh, topped with a bechamel sauce. So that's moussaka. It sounds delicious. I mean, that I mean, we've had moussaka many times. Oh, yeah, no, and I want to make moussaka. I, I, we grew so much eggplant this year that I was going to put moussaka on the website, and I wanted to make a video, too, but we just never got around to it. I actually sent my mom home yesterday with a bunch of eggplants when she came over, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's like a jungle out there, and there's so many more eggplants. But yeah, I read that it, that it came from, uh, that's another theory about yeah. moussaka. So I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to really know for sure where the dish came from. Yeah. But 
chicken, the, basically the takeaway is that chicken parm's origins are in eggplant. I don't think there's any debating that. It's the origins of where the name came from that we, we tried to go over briefly, just a couple of them for you. Being that chicken parm is not originally from Italy, it's hard to talk about it without spending just a few moments mentioning the immigration waves that took place of Italians into the U.S. And this is, just before Tara goes on, this is the most significant thing about all the food that's consumed here in Italian-American culture. And that culture is specifically New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Chicago. It's But we talk about New York. That's what, that's what we're, you would say, experts in. We've lived here for our whole life, mm -hmm. except for three years when we ventured into Minnesota. So that's what we're going to talk about here. So the first wave, believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, Jim, the first wave of Italian immigration was mainly Northern Italians. Yes, I read that. Okay. And that took place prior to 1870. They were refugees from the wars that were taking yep. place to um, unify Italy and when Italy declared its independence. Um, so those Northern Italian immigrants made up about 25,000 Wow, or so, so tiny, tiny. So a small amount. And again, that was prior to 1870. And then from the 1880s through the 1920s, more than 4 million Italian immigrants had come to the U.S. And that, when it finished, when that wave finished, it represented 10% of the foreign-born population in the U.S. And the reason for that emigration from Italy into the U.S., it was really fueled by extreme poverty, and um, it was mostly from southern Italy, including the islands of Sardinia and Sicily. Yeah. So it was really the poverty, famine, um, not being treated as well by their northern countrymen, I would say, is part of it as well. Um, Little tangent here. I read very quickly because we're talking. You said the first wave was 1870 or mm -hmm. pre 1870. Unification was 1860, so pre pre that or around there. I read that the first restaurants to open were trying to they were trying to duplicate that those northern Italian dishes. So they would have bolognese on the menu. They would have other things that were further north. And then when finally when the southern Italians came here on mass, they were told you have to make bolognese and they were like, well, what are you talking about? This isn't the food that we have. So that whole thing about a, so, a sofrito, a mirepoix and bolognese, which is a uniquely a unique thing for that dish, but it is not a unique thing for a lot of Southern Italian cooking, which is just, you know, you skip that. You don't put the carrot in and that eventually that the sheer numbers of them took over. And then every dish that was here in New York for basically the last hundred and something years lacks that northern Italian bent. You do have a few restaurants every so often that mm -hmm. come around, but for the most part, it's always that that red sauce, the yeah. red sauce fair. That's yeah. right, okay. yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to just interject no, that that's, little part. that's yeah. good, that's good. Getting back to chicken parm, so when those Italian immigrants arrived here, they now had access to proteins, right? Like beef, chicken, that they didn't typically have in Italy. Um, in Italy at that time, meat was usually reserved for the upper class who had enough land, I guess, to to farm their own animals. 
Yeah, we don't realize how good we have things here, even to this day. So Angie, who is Tara's stepmother, she immigrated here when she was 12, you think? I think she was 11? nine or 10, but she was from a later wave. She was from a immigrants. later wave, but she gives a lot of insights still. Even her family members who have who are relatively well off there, they don't have air conditioning. They don't have air conditioning, period. So it's 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 so expensive just to mm -hmm. even have air conditioning. Yeah, I, you know, I and they're I, in southern Italy yeah. where it gets it does get hot. Yeah, so it's just it's just crazy what you take for granted what we have here in America and what people that you know, they're not they're definitely not the poorest there, what what they don't have. Yeah, but I know there's plenty of people here in the US that don't have air conditioning either. That's true, but but at a minimum a lot of people here will have uh window units. In some areas. I mean, we're we're watching the Appalachia series, That's Peter true. Santanello. I mean, I yet, don't think those people have air conditioning. Yet I can drive through the Cross Bronx and see every apartment building's got air conditioning sticking, yeah. air conditioning sticking out the yeah. windows. You yeah. know, that's not exactly a <laughs> yeah a well off place. Yeah. All right. So once Italians had access to the, the the proteins, as I as I mentioned, chicken parm kind of cropped up, and it originated in East Coast neighborhoods that were mainly inhabited by Italian immigrants, and it later spread to restaurants and cookbooks in the 1950s. Then I think what really helped it take off was in 1962, the New York Times published a recipe for chicken parm. So you read New York, you read 1962. There's there's multiple sources on the internet that say it was 1953. So we can't confirm that if it was 53 or 62, but it was around that time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would think that probably the early immigrants who didn't you know, it always takes a certain amount of time before they can open up restaurants, before they can open up the cheese shop, you know, the the butcher. They were probably making these dishes far earlier, probably probably way before 1952 or, or 62. But when it became like a wave of popularity is that time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So that's our very quick and dirty <laughs> overview with maybe some information that's still, you know, to be it's debated determined and, and about out. the dates and the origins yeah. and yada, yada, yada. This is a conversational podcast. This is not, this, this isn't su super precise and exact factual dates and ultra researched. You know what you're getting here. The one thing that I'm taking away from, from doing this is that there's uncertainty on the internet about where things originate. And that's true for almost everything. That's why you should always question things that you read online. It's getting to the point now where it's it's hard to find correct information. And if you do find correct information, it's very often not on page one. It's just not. Mm -hmm. Page one is just SEO'd to death. And it's like, you gotta go down to like page five or six. And I, I've said this in past episodes, when I'm looking for recipes, like good recipes. I want a website that doesn't even really work anymore. I'm not <laughs> kidding. It hasn't been updated. It was like the first version of the, it was like web 1.0 that this person who was probably 60 or 70 at the time and who's probably probably no longer alive, it, it's, it's their work. And they might have left like 800 recipes that aren't formatted correctly or anything, but, the, but it's there. The info is there. Now there's a website that, is is well taken care of, but it's definitely not a flashy new website. And I've mentioned him before. It's memory 
D'Angelina. Mm-hmm. And he's he definitely takes more of an Italian bent. He's lived in New Jersey and he's lived in Italy part of his life. I've never spoken to the man before, but I, I believe he's a lawyer in both America and in Italy. So he has like this unique skill set. But he always tries to tell you how his family make things and then he'll, but he'll tell you the American version and then he'll tell you though how the, the real roots of it, like how it's supposed to be. And I don't even know if he has a chicken parm I recipe even on think the to, site. I don't even think to check his website. I don't know if he has a this. chicken parm he might one. Not, yeah. Or, yeah. 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 But those are the type of sites that I'm often looking for when I'm trying mm-hmm. to like find real information about things. Yeah. So, Jim, how do you go about making chicken parm? Tell us, like, we're toddlers. Teach us. I'm going to give you the really quick and dirty about it. And I, you know, I did it 10 seconds in the beginning of the episode. Chicken parm is chicken. It's a chicken cutlet. So a chicken cutlet comes from a chicken breast. And when you buy a chicken breast in the store, it'll be fat. And you, you, you know, at that point you, you cannot just bread that and fry that. It would, it would, it wouldn't be good. And even the worst cooks probably wouldn't attempt to do that. Though I can't be certain. Most people will try and they'll want to buy thin cutlets already. So they don't have to go through the process of filleting them. And I say fillet often and people will always try to correct me. And they're like, Jim, it's not filleting, it's butterflying. No, butterflying is when you book match, you know, you you make a book out of the out of the breast. So what you're doing is you're taking your knife, flat, flat edge of the knife, and you're opening it up, but you're not going all the way through. Mm -hmm. Then you turn it over and you pound it flat. And that would be for like, if you were going to do a schnitzel, a schnitzel, if you were talking about German cooking, but, or if you were going to do like an impressive chicken Milanese Mm -hmm. in a restaurant, they'll often do a huge cutlet like that pounded very thin. And then they'll, you know, maybe they'll make a salad for it. Milanese. We have a recipe where we do a little tomato salad with fresh mozzarella balls, Mm -hmm. but for normally standard chicken parm, they don't really will make, they won't really butterfly. They'll just fillet the cutlet, then they'll pound them. And they'll be about a quarter. Some places will do a half inch thick uh, chicken cutlet. And then after that, it gets floured. Then it gets egg washed. And then finally, it gets dipped in seasoned breadcrumbs. And those seasoned breadcrumbs, some people will just buy you know, your store-bought seasoned breadcrumbs mm-hmm. that typically just has dried parsley, oregano, salt, and pepper in it. Or you could just make your own breadcrumbs and then mix whatever seasonings you want into them. So it's flour, egg, breadcrumbs. My mother often would just do egg and then the breadcrumbs and it would still be fine and not, the, the the worry is that the coating will fall off. So that's that, you would bread all your cutlets and I like to bread the cutlets. And I've done this in many videos where I go through the whole flour, egg, breadcrumb step and then I have baking uh, half, half sheets uh, with parchment paper so I can line up, say I'm doing like seven, eight, 10 pounds of cutlets. And by the way, doing seven, eight, 10, or 15 pounds of cutlets is a very Italian American thing. It is something that people all, this this will ring true to you if you're from New York, if you're from New Jersey, you probably remember your grandmother doing this. It's what my grandmother did. This wouldn't do a couple pounds of them. So they would fry them up and then you'd have them for the week. You eat them cold, eat them hot. But anyway, that's what I would do. I would set them on the parchment paper and then I will go about frying them. And to fry them, you would want it, you can do a shallow fry or you can do where you could put more oil in the pan. I per, personally, I like more oil in the pan when I do them. What do you think about all this, Tara? Sounds pretty good, a cutlet right that's now? That's how I've made it. 
Yeah. Yeah. At this point, you know, I didn't talk about the sauce yet in the cheese, but cutlets scare people uh, a lot of times making them. They're, mm-hmm. what, what do you think is your problem issue with doing cutlets? Or do you not have a problem issue? Are you, do you think you're like, you're very proficient at it now? I don't have a problem with it anymore. I think when I started cooking, cutlets were intimidating, especially if I wasn't buying the thin cutlets, like you mentioned, like having to fillet them myself was a little intimidating. I think this is a fairly simple process. I mean, usually the cutlets, I guess my biggest fear would be undercooking them. But I think with chicken parm, and I know you're going to get into it more and, and that it gets baked also, is that it doesn't have to be fully cooked after you fried them because they're going to spend some time in the oven. They will be fully cooked. And people will often wonder about that. They're like, well, you're, you're, fully, you're not supposed to overcook white meat chicken, which is what a cutlet is. Mm-hmm. You know, you you, re, you read a million times, you watch some famous chef on YouTube or or on uh, Food Network say like, it's gotta be to 160. So then you're asking yourself, well, at that point, it's already done. I'm now gonna do the whole extra cooking process. Normally when you deep fry something like that, when you fry something like that, yeah. it will retain enough moisture in it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But d- your cutlets are probably gonna be cooked all the way through the if they're thin are, enough. They're so thin, they, will, they yeah. will probably be. But I guess you asked me what my fear was, that would be my my main fear with the chicken cutlet would just be that I didn't fully cook it. Also, a thing could be if you're doing like 10 pounds, it would be, you have to clean your oil while you're doing it. Yeah. Removing sediment like that, which means essentially it's like flour and uh, breadcrumb particles, egg batter, all Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe white, maybe stopping. I I personally, if you're going to do 10 pounds, I would have three pans going on your stove. Mm -hmm. That way you can do them all at once. Yeah. So you're not, because otherwise, I mean, that, that could take hours. Yeah. And these are things that a family would do often. I mean, it's, you're not going to see like a single individual making 12 pounds of cutlets. That would be, unless they planned on freezing them, Mm -hmm. but they're, they're great for like a family because then you stick them in the fridge and then like I, when I was young, I would just grab a cutlet or two and may, put it on white bread with mayo and, and salt and pepper. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What's great about if you do all your cutlets in advance, then you can just, you know, you can do chicken parm the next day. Mm-hmm. Now, people worry a lot about this. And this is a question. This is a this is a comment that we get in a lot of videos. I, I assume it was somebody who, I don't know, some YouTuber who's not from New York is saying that, like the cutlet has to be crispy. So they're they're led to think like, I got to fry the cutlet and then I got to not put it in the sauce and, or, and I actually made it this way in the video. I I actually think I did it this way to avert the criticism, which is not the way that typically people will do it here. And they'll put it like on a wired rack just with the cheese on top and a little bit of sauce to keep it crispy. But most of the time places are just, because peep, this is a family dish. This is something for the big group. So you're doing like baking trays of it with the sauce and then put the sauce in the tray. Then you're lining your cutlets. Mm-hmm. Then you're lining your cheese and then you're doing it in the oven. It's, this is peasant food for, for people here. It's not, it's not gourmet food. So Jim, when you are going to bake the cutlets, when the cutlets are done, and you talk about putting them in the pan. Like let's let's not talk about the the wire rack yeah. uh, method of preparing. Let's talk about like that family preparation. And I know the answer to this. I'm asking because f- maybe folks don't know necessarily. So eggplant parm gets layered, right? You'd layer eggplant yeah. one on top of the other. You wouldn't layer chicken parm. 
No, right? I wouldn't. I wouldn't layer it, but you can definitely do like a half layer. We didn't get into the sauce, so we need to talk about the sauce and the cheese. We'll do one at a time. Yeah. So for the sauce, I mean, there's different options, right? Would you use a marinara sauce or would you maybe repurpose a Sunday sauce or does it matter? So it it doesn't matter, but depending on what you use, you're going to get extremely different results. Mm-hmm. Most pizzerias and places, they have a sauce that they just have in a big, you know, huge stock pot that is for their chicken parm, their eggplant parm. And that sauce is kind of a quick sauce. It's like a, close to what you would call a marinara. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot in it, not a lot of seasoning versus a Sunday sauce, like a Sunday gravy is going to be much richer. And a Sunday sauce is always cooked with meat. So you have your brajol, your meatballs, your sausage in it. If you take that sauce and you do it with the chicken parm, you're going to have a, you're going to have definitely have a different flavor. Personally, I love both. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do love both, but I think I'm trying to think of what you're going to do. And probably, probably a quick sauce would be would would be what's more appropriate, especially if you're trying to duplicate a la Parmigiana in in Italy, which is going to be a quick sauce, tomatoes, barely cooked, basil, and then the cheese layered. That's right. And that's my preferred way to do it. I was actually wondering, similar to how the pizza, when you make a pizza sauce, you're not cooking it. It's getting cooked when it's spending time in the oven on top of the pizza. Could you do the same thing for chicken parm, like could you just use a can of crushed tomatoes with a little bit of kosher salt and that's your sauce? No, you definitely can, but if you do do that, you wanna drain them. Yeah, just like you do with the pizza, you have to drain them. Okay. No, because what happens is when you make a sauce, whether it's a marinara in 15 minutes or a Sunday sauce, you're evaporating water in Mm -hmm. the tomatoes. The heat is evaporating the water. If you're taking straight tomatoes out of the can, you gotta get that water out. Okay, that makes sense. This is why I encourage you to make these things and make them your own. These are two very different dishes when you use two different types of tomatoes. And the same thing goes for the cheese. So even though most modern interpretations, and again, we were talking the intro when we were saying how it's trying to be claimed that it was created in like the name Parmigiana, you know, I, I, who knows what the real truth is behind it. But if you're, you're gonna do that, then then you must use Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese for it, plus your mozzarella. Mm-hmm. But if you you don't have to do that, it's delicious if you just use mozzarella and pecorino. But I'm sure in Sicily, they probably make a lot of them with different types of cheese. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a certain way. And another thing that's really good, and we did a video for it, is making chicken and eggplant parm together. That's right. That was good. That probably enraged lots of people in it Italy. It didn't. When you can't decide, you put them both together. So, Jim, you say you're using mozzarella cheese. Is it the fresh? Is it block? Should you ever use the bagged, shredded version? Okay. So <laughs> I don't recommend the bag shredded. That has the, the anti-caking agents in it. But, mm-hmm. you know, you can in a pinch. And that's honestly probably what a lot of pizzerias are using anyway. Most pizzerias are using mozzarella by Grande, the brand Grande. And I I think Grande sells it by eight pound bricks and they probably do have a graded version, a shredded version, I should say. I personally like block mozzarella more than fresh mozzarella. Fresh mozzarella is very hard to melt properly. And you know, time is a little bit of the essence when you're making this dish. You don't wanna be baking it for 45 minutes because 
as we said before, your cutlets are already cooked. Yeah. So it's really the only reason you're baking it maybe is to let the cutlets absorb some of the sauce and to melt the cheese. Yeah, I mean, if, if you want to do it, if you don't want your crispy cutlet, and remember, if you're going to do this for the crispy cutlet, time is of the essence. You got to fry those cutlets, drain them properly, make sure you have your sauce, your cheese ready to go. You would put the cutlet on top of a wired rack, and then you would put your cheese, and that would probably be a little bit of mozzarella. You could also get sliced mozzarella from the deli counter, and then you could either put a little bit of Parmesan on top or maybe better under the mozzarella, like to lock it in. Mm -hmm. That's if you want Parmesan, but you're better off, and you know if you watch me, you're better off with Pecorino, no. always. Always I'm, better off I'm with Pecorino. I'm team Parmesan Reggiano. Ah. <laughs> yeah. ah. Well, and that's what's great. We can uh, we still love each other, and we can disagree on that. We can disagree on whether or not we love each other, too. No. <laughs> but the, the, this is a great dish, and you really should try to make it your own here. Um, I hope I don't think I adequately told you how good this is. And there's like Instagram accounts devoted just to chicken parm, and people are their chicken. They call themselves chicken parm connoisseurs. And yeah. So how would you? At what temperature would you would you bake? The chicken parm. I mean, honestly, I would just do it at 400, get it done quick. Just get the cheese to melt. And it's so much easier to melt the cheese by using block mozzarella instead of fresh mozzarella. Mm -hmm. Fresh mozzarella too, you melt it. And then once you take it out of the oven, it will harden up to a rock again yeah. in a matter of a minute. So your timing, if you're going to do this, and if you're one of those Reddit boys and you want to do this and you want to impress your date for the first time, when you pull that out of the oven, you better make sure she's sitting at the table and ready with her fork and knife to eat it, or it'll just it'll just dry into a mass again. That's personally why I always prefer pizza with regular block mozzarella, grande mozzarella, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. or palio or galbani. I or prefer whatever. fresh for eating raw, not raw, uncooked. I yeah. should say, or yeah. not melted, right? Yeah. Like in salads and yeah. Sandwiches. I love fresh like mozzarella, but you know, th there's uh, there's a reason why block mozzarella, why Palio, the original block mozzarella company that essentially built New York. I mean, they they had such an effect here. They had cookbooks that every single person in like my mom still has the books and she goes crazy over them. They all had them and they exchanged all those recipes that were essentially the Palio recipes. Palio created all these recipes so you would use their own products. In in the dishes, you know. You should drop a photo of your mom's polio cookbook yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, I should. Mm -hmm. I got to get it back if she'll give it to me. She yeah. just she got. She's like Jimmy. Where's my book? You know. So <laughs> I go see. She might she might have it in a safe now or something. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna move into questions in one second. If you liked this episode, consider subscribing to our Patreon. There's three price levels. Each one's a little different. The maximum level is going to get the cookbook when the Sip and Feast cookbook comes out, but that's gonna be a number of months from now. Regardless of what level you're on, you get full Discord benefits. And then the other thing is you get two more podcast episodes per month. Right after we finish this one, we're gonna be filming the Patreon episode. Right. All right, let's go into the questions. Okay, so Jim, the first question comes from Christine. This is, I'm going to read you what she sent us. She says, I've been obsessed with watching food videos for some time and have always been bothered by something. I know it's not sexy or time efficient to show every true step in the cooking process in a YouTube video, but over and over again, I see cooks not seeming to follow good 
food safety practices in their kitchen. My husband and I have worked in grocery retail, each of us for nearly 30 years and have taken our fair share of food safety courses. So we notice when a cook handles raw chicken and then washes their hands for three seconds of running water without soap or forms a ground beef patty and then dips their fingers into salt bowl for a pinch. I've never seen anything close to this in your videos and I'm just wondering how conscious you are of this issue when you are in the kitchen. So Christine, this is a great question. Uh, as far as the salt one, I had multiple people tell me, because I, I think I actually pointed out in one video, I said, wash your hands after I was fooling around with ground beef. They're like, it doesn't matter. You can put your fingers right into the salt. Uh, and I use a salt box, which uh, I'm sure anybody who's watched the channel knows it's, it's a great little tool to have, but they're like, you could reach right in at that point because salt cannot carry anything, cannot be a vector to carry anything. Out of habit, I always wash my hands, no matter if I'm touching beef, chicken, pork, always. And you're right, you haven't seen on the channel me handling things in a bad way because I just don't. Mm -hmm. I don't. And part of that is just I've always followed these rules and it's just it's it's ingrained. It's 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 habitual. I think part of the reason why I and I and I know Christine acknowledges that it's not, you know, you time efficient to show the the cleanup process, but there really is so much that happens off camera that we just, you wouldn't be interested in watching. I mean, after, after we handle chicken, we're wiping down the entire counter and any surface that could have yeah. potentially come in contact with the chicken before we move on to the next step. Yeah. And I, I have rags I use uh, with a little bit of bleach and water and those rags, which you, you might notice, like those are to wipe down counters and stuff. And it's just, Tara's right. You can't show everything. Where we struggle with is we really do try to show, I, I think a lot more than most channels do. That slows us down substantially. So we'll have about 45, 50 minutes of footage uh, and then it gets cut down to a 12 minute video for you. The other thing is, <laughs> the beginning part, the prepping of the ingredients is what takes the longest. So I love this guy. His name is Pasquale Scarapo on Facebook. He has a YouTube, but he's much more popular on Facebook and very old man, uh, Italian man uh, from New Jersey. And you probably, if you watch me, you probably you, you, you probably know who I'm talking about. And all the ingredients are already there in the beginning of each video. So it's really nice how he does it. And I, I don't know why I've not... I'm not migrating to that. I feel like if I do that tower, then the videos will be very short. Do you mean his ingredients are already prepped all when prepped he in goes? Bowls. So he's not taking time to video all of the the prep and the I've chopping never seen him, and everything. I've never seen him cut anything. Yeah, yeah. it's always just right into cooking. We have gotten a lot of comments saying that people really enjoy watching you prep the ingredients. Like they find it to be relaxing. And the prepping has sped up dramatically uh, in the... In the early videos, I used to say I used to like show myself chopping an onion, and I would say chop, you know, chop or dice an onion or whatever. Now I do, I do a monologue. Basically, the video is like, "Hey, welcome. We're gonna make blah blah blah. Let's get into it." And then boom is the monologue. So the monologue is me talking about all the ingredients, and then I overlay the footage of when I prepped it. So that's how what I do to try to move everything along. Those monologues are are fairly difficult because I don't. There's no script or anything, so I have to like kind of like commit to memory the ingredient amounts and everything. And sometimes, just a little secret, it takes me two tries to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes if you say the wrong amount of an ingredient, 
you can't go back and no. and reshoot that. So you just throw up on the screen. I throw it up on the screen with text, which mm-hmm. isn't ideal. You really want to get everything in audio. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks but for the- that's why we always send people to the website for the complete written recipe. I wish everybody goes to the website because it's a million times better, the recipe. And it, it's not about helping me and Tara. It's about helping you. It's so much better for you. That is the one ace in the hole we have above almost all the other channels. If you're trying to make a recipe from just my video instructions, that's going to be a lot more difficult than if you have the print recipe also with you. Yeah. And I'm not talking about just a text thing in the description of the YouTube video. I'm talking about the real print recipe that's it with you know the way it's itemized on the recipe card that's on the website. It's mm-hmm. it's beautiful how it's done. Yeah. Beautiful. I agree. Yeah. I agree. All right. So the next question comes from Mary and Mary wants to know if we're doing a Christmas cookie collection on the website. She wants to make cookies this year and she's looking for some inspiration. Well, thanks for the question, Mary. I don't know if we're going to do a collection. We do have, I believe, about 24 desserts on the website, but there needs to be more cookies. I do. I do agree with that. We have a good portion of cookies on the website and they're all really Christmas cookies, right? cookies that would be made around Christmas time. And that's lemon ricotta cookies. We have cuchadati, which are the fig filled cookies. We have pinoli cookies. Yeah, the cuchadati are Sicilian cookie. Basically all the mm-hmm. desserts that we have are the Sicilian, Sicilian yeah. ones. Yeah, the pinoli. We also have the walnut snowball cookies. We've got Linzer cookies, almond biscotti. We have pizzelle, which I don't know if it's like a cookie or a waffle, but it's, you know, we eat them as cookies. Uh, Reginelle cookies. Oh, red, the Reginelle are which amazing. Which are the sesame seed cookies, yeah. which are probably you can make my those favorite. And you can make them all year round. They're even the, I wouldn't even associate them with Christmas. They're like the perfect cookie to have with your morning coffee. Yeah. That's like the quintessential New York Italian bakery cookie. Yeah. Every bakery will have because them. every bakery in New York is almost always Sicilian. I, I mean, I know, I know, I don't want to generalize. There, there are some that aren't, but they the one all, by us is not. <laughs> they all well, that's not an Italian bakery. No, I know. Yeah, no, uh, no. I there's there are non-Italian yeah. bakeries, yeah. but once you get to an Italian bakery, mm-hmm. they would never in New York not have all the Sicilian desserts. Yeah. On, on. I mean. Imagine that you go into a bakery and you're like, no, we don't have cannoli. You'd be like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And what about um. I can never say it right. Swedel. How do you, how do you, is that it's, Sicilian or not? I think it is. It's a svoliatelle. God, I can never say that. Never. And I'm probably not even giving it justice by the way I'm pronouncing it, but the immigration here, it's gets pronounced differently by different people, depending on where your ancestors are from. Yeah, some An- people, An- Angie says it some, har- yeah. horribly. Yeah. She dies. She says, she says Swedel. <laughs> yeah. Some people call it Svoliatelle. Yeah. Swedel. You got to get the F in front of the S, which is, it doesn't, just doesn't come out. But if you're going to pronounce it the way it's spelled, it would be Svoliatelle. So anyway, that dessert, which is, it looks like, uh, how would you describe it? Like a seashell. Okay. It looks like a seashell. It's a whole bunch of layers. Cr- crispy on the outside and then the inside has um like a ricotta which yes. dry a pro- dry my pronunciation of ricotta was called out in a, pre- <laughs> in 
a previous podcast. Well, I don't say it. I mean, the person who's getting I don't, a, I don't say regat because that's not the way I grew up saying it. And I, my mom says regat, but I, I yeah. say, I try to like toe the line. So I, you always hear me saying it. I'll always be like, regat. I always try yeah. to bring the, the vowel at the so, end of it. But, yeah. But I nobody see. in New York says it with the vowel. Everybody says regat. You know, you go, you, you listen to somebody. No, I think the person was telling me I need to say regat. No, I know he was. Yeah. And that's a lot of people in New York will do that. Just like they'll say, don't call it sauce, call it gravy. Yeah. But no, it's like there's other ones. You, you know, you'll see like meme jokes about it, but people will not say, I'll take the fried calamari. They'll be like, uh, the, the calamari. Yeah, the calamari. Yeah. You know, it doesn't even, it, it, it almost sounds like you think you, you think that's how it was only shown that way in the Sopranos. It's not true. That's how I grew up saying it. I say ricotta. You know, I'm not going to be like Giada De Laurentiis and be like ricotta, you know, yeah. but, uh, I say it the way I say it the way I say it. I can't take Giada seriously at all because I heard she doesn't eat any of the food she makes. <laughs> I heard that. That's too. ridiculous. So she's been making food all this time and never eating it. I will say though, any of the recipes I've made from her have been really good. So I do take her seriously. Well, I okay. And if she doesn't want to eat her own food, then Yeah, I gotta stop eating all my food. I've been eating way too much of it. And honestly, this is the time of year that I get even more worried because now I'm going into pizza and bread baking season. But I want to just, right before we go, I want to call, tell you, if you're listening, or maybe you know someone, there are certain recipes on our site that are going to take too long for me to do right. And say it again. Uh, oh, Svoljatel. So that one is going to take too much work for me to do. I would put a contributor on, and we want to have a couple contributors, people that know, you need to know more than me, okay? Like, you need to be like, Jim, this isn't this isn't right. Like I want to bring a dessert person in to do that. Well, the person has to know how to make dessert, but they also know how to photograph. Yeah, it's going to be a little tough ask, but yeah, if you can photograph, if you can like in the same style that we do, and if you can do those desserts, we would love to have you. The other thing we would love to have is if you're a pasta maker, if you're a professional pasta maker, because the pasta making stuff is kind of it needs to be done. It's almost like table stakes, but Many of you are not going to make a lot of these recipes, but we do need to get them on the site. And that goes from your basic fresh pastas all the way to your more complex tortellini, ravioli, stuff like that. So it's a process. But yeah, those two things, just want to put it out there. Yeah. Again, podcast at sipandfeast.com. Send us an email with your questions. We will see you next time.